0: We haven't had a Four Minutes of Threads episode for a while, so let's dip back into it today. For new podcast listeners, this is an occasional series where we examine Threads, the 1984 nuclear war film, and the best nuclear war film, in minute detail. We take it four minutes at a time because four minutes was chosen to match the famous four minute warning. Today we're on episode 7, so we're starting the film from 24 minutes in. It's Sunday, May twenty second. Sunday, Sunday, is supposed to be a day of rest, of course, a day of tranquillity, and gardening, and a big roast dinner, and then a nap in front of boring t v. But here comes Threads, and Threads likes to stamp all over our notion of a peaceful British Sunday. We know that this won't be a peaceful Sunday, we know the idea of peaceful Sundays and peaceful Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, any days are fast vanishing, because nuclear war comes closer every single day. We see the local newsagent and our Alison is collecting papers for her paper round. In the window of the shop we see a poster advertising milk, and you might remember from previous episodes, I discussed how milk... Pops up all the time in this film. Milk and milk bottles and milk crates and milk floats, representing, I suppose, wholesomeness and health, representing perhaps the vulnerability of our land and food supply, because, as we know, and as we discussed in the previous episode Windscale and Atomic Milk, in a nuclear disaster the milk supply always has to be disposed of, always has to be thrown away. It always becomes tainted because fallout lands on grass, the cows chomp it up and then it appears in their milk. So our ultimate wholesome and healthy foodstuff becomes one of the first nuclear casualties, one of the first things to be tainted by fallout. So here we are with yet another little mention of milk in this film. As Alison loads up her papers and wheels the bike away, We see the headline behind her is US ultimatum expires today. Yep, nuclear tension is building, war is drawing horribly closer. But normal life trundles on. Alison still wheels her bike to the shop for the paper round. It's almost frustrating how ordinary life trundles on. Why is she not reading the headlines in those newspapers and cowering under her bed? Ah, but normal life isn't going on in Sheffield City Centre on this Sunday. A huge protest rally is being held. And it's an angry one. You'd think this issue would unite the population. You'd think everyone in the crowd would be demanding the government stop this oncoming war. But instead there's anger in the crowd towards the speakers who, admittedly, are presented as clichéd... 1980s lefties the female speaker is wearing a smock and a, a woolly bobble hat she looks like the ultimate vegetarian joyless lefty but in her angry speech to the crowd she says something which is pure and unarguable the the common sense of life as we know it. and at worst total annihilation you cannot win a nuclear war You cannot win a nuclear war. Now, who can argue with that? The old notion of winning a war, of victory, take 1945, for example, is about surrender and the signing of terms, and then the celebrations in the streets, the bunting and the street parties. There'd be none of that after an all-out nuclear war. Forget popping the champagne. You couldn't even pop open a bottle of milk, as we know. The only victory, of course, is not to have a nuclear war. But we're past that point already in threads. War is by now horribly inevitable. And that's why it's so nerve-wracking to see Alison casually wheeling her bike to the paper shop. Don't you know the end of the world is coming, Alison? But back to the angry rally. As our speaker cries that Britain will be devastated in a nuclear war and all industry ruined... A member of the crowd heckles her. Industry? What industry? We got no industry in Sheffield! And this reminds us that Threads was written by Barry Hines, a left-wing writer who was concerned with the lives of working-class Northerners. This is the 80s, remember, where yuppies in London were zooming around Chelsea in fast cars, hanging around in wine bars and weighing themselves down with Rolex watches, whereas the north of England, much of Scotland of course, was enduring painful de-industrialisation with nothing to replace all those lost jobs. So yes, the heckler has a point, but I don't see why he's directing his anger at the speaker on the platform, because she surely doesn't represent the Conservative government who were blamed for the death of Sheffield's traditional industry. Why pick on her? Maybe it's because she is the closest thing to authority on that platform. I assume that no Conservative government minister was brave enough to stand up on a platform in Sheffield at this time, at this late stage. No doubt they were all scattering for their bunkers. So this woman on the platform, perhaps she's a representative of CND, she is the closest thing this angry crowd have to... An authority figure. After all, she's up there, elevated on the platform with a microphone. She is the figure at whom they can throw their anger and fear. And then, in the midst of all the shouting and heckling, we hear the sound of music. Ruth is in the crowd and looks over her shoulder to see where it's coming from. And it's a brass band from the Salvation Army. Now, we normally see these bands on the streets of Britain at Christmas. So it's an unusual sight to see them here in May. And for me, it's a sad, wistful sight as the Sally Army, as they're often nicknamed, are associated with Christmas goodwill and charity. And here they go, playing their little tunes, marching past the crowd, as if they're trying to offer a hint or a reminder of peace to the angry crowds. but yep. No one even notices them, except Ruth, who just gives them a glance. If you want to dig deeper to find some meaning here, let's look at the Salvation Army. Their members are given military titles. Their clergy are not called Father or Reverend, but Lieutenant and Major. So here on the streets of Sheffield, with their military titles, their black uniform and hats, marching information... Brandishing, not weapons, but musical instruments, is an alternative army, an alternative to war. And yet they go unnoticed. Or, for those who do glance at them, perhaps they're seen as quaint and Christmassy. Because now, there is only one type of army which matters. And they are not concerned with goodwill. This glimpse of the Salvation Army feeds nicely into the next scene where we see Ruth's parents praying quietly in church and as they do text flashes up on screen to tell us that the US ultimatum has expired and so the US have struck a Soviet base in Iran with conventional missiles to which the Russians respond with a nuclear-tipped missile and there we are the first use in this simmering conflict of nuclear weapons. Once that happens, it's like the floodgates are opened. I see no difference between tactical and strategic nuclear weapons. Of course, there's a difference in power and yield, but even if a small one is used in battle, it's like opening Pandora's box. It's like giving consent. It's like waving a flag saying, let's go nuts. The other side are then compelled to match, or, of course, surpass you, and so we escalate into all-out nuclear war. So this, then, is the point of no return, the first use of a nuclear weapon, and it happens whilst our characters are quietly praying for peace, showing how small and futile and puny we are against these weapons. The teletype still hammers across the screen telling us the US respond with a nuclear weapon on the Soviet base, and then the teletype says, Exchange stops. And that is just so horribly ominous. Exchange stops. But what is to come next? In the silence after the teletype slams to a halt, we go back to the church and the congregation finish their prayer off her knees and sit back on the pews. Okay then, so nuclear war has simmered and boiled over during their desperate recitation of the Lord's Prayer. And the scene switches now from one futile but good-hearted act to another. We leave Ruth's mother praying, and now we see her sitting at home knitting baby clothes, This is, of course, a desperately sad scene as she knits tiny little cardigans for the grandchild she'll never live to see and who, of course, will never wear them. Instead of being bundled up in soft knitted cardigans and snuggly shawls and cute romper suits, her granddaughter will grow up in stinking, filthy rags. These tiny, soft little cardigans will just lie unfinished and unworn. In fact, later in the film, we see her granddaughter and other children put to work in picking apart garments so that their threads might be reused. So as Mrs Beckett makes an item of clothing, the future generation, stunted and miserable and starving, will take them apart, break them down, unpick every careful and loving stitch. Moving into 27 minutes, we see earth-moving equipment being trundled through the streets. We can imagine what those are for. To dig mass graves, perhaps? To push bodies into the mass graves? To clear rubble out of the ruined streets? If you look back to my episode called Disposal of the Dead, you'll find... Well, I think you'll find. I recorded it two years ago, so can't quite remember the details... But I think I might have mentioned that mechanical diggers probably wouldn't be used to dig graves after nuclear war because fuel would have to be so carefully rationed. Far easier to order your starving survivors to do it. And then we see the supermarket. Their shelves have been stripped by panic buyers. On one shelf we see a discarded box of Farley's Rusks. Uh, Famous baby food, of course. I think we all remember Farley's Rusks. That's another nod to babies who appear throughout the film, almost as often as milk does. And thought that people have been out hoarding Rusks so they might feed their babies after nuclear war is almost too horrible to contemplate. As we see the empty shelves, a radio announcer says that panic buying is unnecessary. Well, we all know that such reassurances from on high don't work. We see that just now with coronavirus lockdown. Panic buying spreads just like a virus. And logic has no place. Now, this is the 80s, so food shopping is largely the preserve of women. But here is Mr Kemp doing the family shopping. Remember, he's been made redundant and has been forced to become a house husband. We saw him earlier making the dinner whilst wearing a frilly apron. Clumsy symbolism, perhaps, but a clear sign that he's been emasculated, humiliated, stripped of his status and traditional role. And now here he is, with the old ladies in the supermarket. Oh, Mr. Kemp, if you're unhappy now, just wait to see what the future has for you. As he queues, we see someone putting a tin of lychees into their basket. Now perhaps I'm being snobby and patronising, but I assume that means that choice is limited. I can't imagine that lychees was the first choice for the 1980s Sheffield housewife. People are being forced to buy a tin of lychees instead of perhaps tins of soup and spaghetti and stew because everything else is gone to be a bit more light-hearted for a moment the simpsons do the same in the hurricane episode where marge goes into the quickie mart to find it stripped of everything but creamed eels and wadded beef so our housewives and mr kemp are reduced to buying tins of lychees for dinner and as the food becomes scarce so the prices rise the shopkeeper has bumped up the cost even though, in a day or so, money will cease to have any value, he'd have done far better to close his shop and hang on to his tinned legumes. Forty p? That's scandalous. They were only twenty six p last week. we are always shop somewhere else, you know. If we're not satisfied, honestly, if there's a national emergency going on, and all you can think about is lining your pockets. Look, nobody's forcing you to buy them. Put them back on shelves if you don't want them. Yes, I will. I'd soon have staff first. Uh, excuse me, love. And suddenly, all the reassuring bickering about prices comes to a halt because someone bursts into the supermarket with news for his mum. They've started fighting, mum. Who oh, has? The Americans and the Russians. It's just been on the news. Dad says you've got to come home now. Come on, oh, come on. You. Hey, you haven't paid for them things! I not paid for them things... Even with the bomb about to drop, he's still worried about his money. Let the lesson be, don't be concerned with money, just hang on to your lychees. So that's our latest in the series, Four Minutes of Threads. Remember, you can find me on Twitter at Julia A. McDowell, or on Facebook under Nuclear Britain. And before I go, let me thank the following patrons. Anne-Marie McCann, Michelle B., Ian McAidale, Tony Newman... Ben Taylor, Laney Peterson and Jonathan Abelins. And if you want to support the podcast with a donation each month on Patreon, please go to patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. Thank you for listening and I'll be back next Monday with another episode.